What is up, my man? Trey, how you doing? I'm sorry, great. sorry, how I missed you? you Monday. I mean, that was a Monday we had quite a bit to talk about, too. Oh, that's okay. You ended up at the Irwin Center covering the game on Monday night. So I think it was a, a good trade-off. You just you just pulled a uh you just pulled a San Diego LA Chargers right there. You just called it the oh, Irwin Center. I said Irwin Center, didn't I? Gosh. <laughs> uh yeah, but uh, hey, it's it's funny you say that because that home court was the exact opposite of the Irwin center. Um, I mean, it was just another example of when that place is rocking, like that's, it's one of the best home courts. I mean, I, well, I'm not going to say that. I, I haven't been to quite a you know view of the blue blood basketball facilities and, and all that, but I mean, I, I would put it up against a lot of, a lot of what I've seen. So uh, it was a bummer. I'm not going to defend the Irwin Center too much, but for a game like that, the Irwin Center could actually be really good too. Like the True, Irwin Center but- obviously fits six six thousand more people than the Moody Center does, and it is cavernous for games where there wasn't high demand for the tickets. But for a game like that, that would likely have been a sellout, the Irwin Center could be a really good home court advantage too. But you get that more often, game in and game out, at the Moody Center than you do the Irwin Center. Yeah, definitely. But I do think, I mean, maybe it was different when you were, when you were in school, but like when I was in school, it was the Kansas game. And even the Kansas game would be the the big one. Like it would have been a similar vibe to, to that, you know, usually more often than not Bill Self bringing a top five team in the country to town and the place would be mostly full, but that thing just seats so many damn people, man. Like even on a Saturday in January or February after UT football season, it was tough to fill that place up. And I mean, cavernous is a, is a great word. Cause it just wasn't like the noise didn't do what it should have been doing. And the Moody centers just perfect for that. I mean, it was so loud in there Monday night and you could tell it gave those guys an extra boost. I mean, they had to what down eight at the half 10 at one point in the first half and had to kind of chip away at it and come back, ultimately take the lead. And when they were making big buckets and getting big stops, that place was absolutely on fire. So are you under a basket when you're covering games in person? Yeah. So I sit in the same spot. I'm trying to think of like, if you're watching on TV, I'm like right by the Texas bench. So like arenas right here, let's say like, uh, well, I guess right here for where it's flipped on the camera now, but like, like Rodney and the team are sitting right here. Like if they look to their right and I look to my left, like we would be looking right at each other. Yeah. So you're, you're in front, like, or in front of or around a lot of the, uh, the big money people. I'm right. I'm literally right in front of like some of the biggest donors at UT. They're all sitting right. Yeah. They're all sitting right behind where I'm at. And I don't know if it's the same on the other side. I don't, I mean, obviously you got to pay a pretty penny in whatever facet to whatever regard, to sit down there, but I don't know who exactly is on the other side, but yeah, like to my left is the, the corral. So like right, but then right behind the Texas bench to my left is the Wranglers and um, the rest of the, the crazies in the corral. And they're awesome, man. Like all those, all those students over there now, it's, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to where I can like talk about the difference and talk about the Irwin center, but still young enough to where like a lot of the stuff's still the same. Like the Wranglers were there when I was in school, a bunch of my buddies were Wranglers and I mean, they went and they, they did their part, but like the way it is now, like how into it all these different groups get and even just 
students that don't have affiliations with the spirit group or it's, it's really cool. Yeah. I love what CDC and Drew Bart- Martin had a hand in this and anybody else who was responsible for really give beard, give beard a ton of credit too. Was Beard in on that decision making process? Because if Beard, so, he deserves Beard some credit. Was, I mean, you did. He was, he was definitely involved in the corral portion of it, like creating that. Um, and then, like, is the corral just the first level of seating that's directly behind the benches? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah that, he, he, had a, he had a big idea, hand in that. Not taking up the entirety of that side, like you see at some places, like at Cameron Indoor, let's say, but you allow the students to really make an impact and you build the enthusiasm there too. Because when you and I were students, student seating at the Irwin center was behind baskets and then in the upper decks. And I guess the seating was okay. If you got low enough behind one of the baskets, but those seats aren't great. No see the action on one end of the court and you're just kind of squinting and kind of looking around uh, the people in front of you or a basket or an official that's standing in a way to try and see what's happening on the other end of the court. So to give people the opportunity to sit more within the confines of the court, baseline to baseline students, which does allow them to talk trash to the opposing team and help pick up our team. If things are going poorly, like they were in the first half against Houston on Monday night. Yeah. It's just a phenomenal idea. I love what they've done. I said for a long time, they needed to cut down on the amount of seating at any future arena and people crowed about that. Cause they're like, well, that's for concerts too. It's like, that's fine. Concerts with 10,000 people is still okay. Also. And apparently the concert going experience is a really good one as well. Talked yeah, to I, several I still, people who went to tool on Tuesday or Wednesday. And they said it was a hell of a show. I still need to go see a show over there. I mean, I've at this point been to so many games as a media member and even a couple as a fan too. But yeah, I need to I need to go see the experience from a from a concert standpoint. Uh, but speaking of experiences too, got the Foster Pavilion in Waco experience last night for the U, for the UT women's basketball game against Baylor. Big win for Vic Schaefer and his team. Uh, that's a I saw people complaining online and rightfully so about the camera angle on TV, and it was it's one of those where like we kept comparing it to Oklahoma State. I don't know if you remember or the last time you watched the game there on ESPN or whatever platform. And it's like so steep that the cameras are like looking straight down on the court. Yeah. That's how it is there from just like an in arena standpoint where we were like, look, looking out at the seats, it's really steep on the ends like that. And then a little bit different, a little bit less steep on like each side of the court. Um, But that's a beautiful facility right there. Brand new off of I-35 in Waco. Was that a full house in Waco last night? Yeah. And that was, yeah, they, they have an awesome atmosphere for, for women's basketball. Again, I don't know what they're like when they're hosting Iowa state. I don't know what it's like. It could be similar to what it's like when the Texas women host Iowa state. But like, I know for the UT women's games, like the atmosphere really only gets like that. If they're playing Baylor, like when UConn was in town earlier this season, uh, or even Kit, Kansas State, they play Kansas State Sunday, and they're the number two team in the country. So maybe it'll be good atmosphere for that. Uh, but yeah, that that was a fun fun one last night. It was cool getting to see getting to see that new arena. Honest question: Did the Texas women fill up the Moody Center for the big games? Um, I think so. Yeah, okay. it was All even right. the last game. Like I went to the OU game, and again, like it's OU, but 
with OU's like OU's basketball history isn't like I would all, honestly almost always say for that sport and the dynamic over the years that like Baylor is almost more of a rival just in that sport, you know, because of Mulkey and how good Baylor's been national champions and, and obviously Texas and their history too. But yeah, even for that OU game, like they had a, they had a really good crowd. Um, I wasn't, unfortunately wasn't there when they hosted, I can't remember where we were when they hosted Baylor a couple weeks ago. Okay. Well, the Texas basketball team, they do lose and, Wins and losses matter most in this sport this time of year. Close losses are there's silver linings that you can extract from them, but a loss is still a loss. Texas does lose to Houston in overtime. What did you take away from that game? Getting to watch courtside. Honestly, like not not a whole lot. Like I didn't I didn't have like a huge takeaway other than like they had chances, but Houston's the number four team in the country for a reason. I mean, their defense was everything that it was advertised to be. They play uh, tough, physical, like their offensive rebounding, which has been an issue for Texas. Like it really just kind of reinforced the same things I've thought about this team that we've talked about, where maybe number one being like when they're on and they're playing well and they're engaged, they do have the talent to, I think, beat anybody in the country. Now, would I pick them to beat the top teams in the country? more often than not. I don't think they're at that point yet, but I still think this team has another level. So that only reinforced that, but then it also reinforced the same reasons why this team hasn't reached that level yet, which is the offensive rebounding, the lapses on offense, like just some of the easy buckets in the first half they missed were just brutal. Like Dylan Mitchell missing that dunk. I look, I get it. It happens. But and he he was not the only one. I thought actually all in all he ended up playing one of his better games of the season, maybe of his career too. I mean, he had a stretch in the second half where he kind of took over and I think had six straight points, really helped them come back and ultimately take the lead for a little while. But yeah, it just reinforced those same things where I'm like, ah, they they've got to figure out a way to crash the glass because the same thing has happened in multiple games where I mean that's what happened in the UCF game. That was the meltdown there was they just couldn't grab a freaking rebound. Yeah. And you, and you saw that again and Jamal Shed, man, the uh, Austin area kid, Maynard high grad, uh senior senior point guard, just goes to show you in college basketball how big a experienced point guard like that who can run your team, play defense and score. Just like a point guard who like I have no idea what Jamal Shed's pro prospects are whether that's in the nba the g league overseas like i'm sure the guy will get an opportunity somewhere but he's not like a first round nba draft prospect at least at least to my knowledge he's not but in college basketball there's so many of those guys an experienced guard and i think that's kind of what texas is hoping ace miss and hunter can can both become Hmm. Uh, i mean obviously ace miss has had multiple big moments this season but tyrese hunter i think and it was the one that's they're gonna have to find a way to just get a more consistent effort from him. Cause Trey, one day on here we're we're talking about a 21 point game and a game winning shot and Tyrese Hunter's him and all the stuff I see on Twitter. And then I, I don't have the box score in front of me, but whatever he did against Houston, it I think even he would admit it it needed to be more if they were gonna win that game. Yeah, and look, I go back to what made him effective at Iowa State versus what he's dealt with the last couple of years here in Austin, and that is him having the basketball in his hands a little bit more, bringing the ball up the court. He is 
a passive laid back dude. And that lends itself to guys like Marcus Carr and now Max Asmus bringing the ball up a lot more. And I realize Asmus is looked at as more of a point guard type, but Asmus is a scoring guard. He is. And he, it's not like he's just ball hogging it. As soon as he gets it to the Texas end on offense, he does pass it off and he gets the ball back and he takes a fair number of shots. It, it's a scary proposition based on what Tyrese Hunter at the, did at the end of regulation where he's trying to rush for some reason to get an easy basket when they could have just pulled back and uh, dribbled for what would have been close to a last shot in that game. But I still feel like to get the best Tyrese Hunter, you need to make sure he remains engaged. And by doing that, you have him as this team's true on point guard. I was impressed with Dylan Mitchell. He was a guy that really needed to be focused at the beginning of the game. And he was, we didn't see him fumbling around with the basketball. He was being very aggressive uh, even though Texas did get out rebounded, he was aggressive on rebounds. He was aggressive to the bucket. Unfortunately, he missed like two or three dunks. But that's the Dylan Mitchell that this Texas team needs going forward if they're going to beat competition like Houston. Yeah, the the missed dunk. Like I know it happens, but man, it's just those are those are baskets that you know you don't want to harp too much on a first half basket or missed opportunities in the first half, but. When you, when you end up losing in overtime like that and you were down eight at the half and you still managed to come back against a team that is fighting to be a one seed in the NCAA tournament, like that's you, – you can't have – and I mean, Rodney said it after the game. They just missed so many bunnies right at the basket, right at the rim. But I, I agree with you on Mitchell, and I think they're going to need more of that. They're going to – if they can find more ways to get him – to get him involved in – in the offense where, you know, drawing up plays for him, whether it's a little mid-range jumper. I mean, he's pretty good with that little open elbow jumper when he can get it. Or if you get him in a spot where he can maybe kind of post a guy up in the mid-range or face a, face up and take a guy to the basket, he's he's pretty good in, in that regard. But I think if they can get him going, that will help them later on down the line. Because at the end of games – it kind of seems like the offense just immediately turns into, and I'm not saying this is, this is a bad thing. Like, like if you're still trying to figure out how it all works and how the pieces all fit together, even this late in the season, go with what works. And what, what works right now is throwing it into Dylan to Sue and letting Max Aismas find a shot. Like that's, what's been working. But sometimes I think it just becomes so predictable that teams sort of plan around it. Or, you know, if the doesn't have his best game, then you're sort you're kind of like, well, what's our inside presence offensively? Um, yeah. Sean, Sean just chimed in. We need a third on offense. Totally agree with that. And you would think you would think it's already the obvious name is the guy we've already talked about, which is Tyrese Hunter, but maybe uh, Kendall Weaver starts to turn into that guy as he continues to receive more minutes. We see more out of his game, including a propensity to score points, you know? I keep I keep talking about his three point shooting, Trey. I'm like every time he shoots, <laughs> I think about our conversations, and I'm like, I'll make it, validate me, make it. <laughs> he made one on Monday, didn't he? Yeah, I think he needs. Uh, I don't know if he did. I think he. I know he missed a few. Um, either he either made one on Monday or he made one against BYU on Saturday. Maybe that's what it was because I saw him chirping to the BYU students. After he made a shot, and I was like, uh-oh, Kendall, be careful. Remember who your coach is now. That's bad sportsmanship. Oh, my gosh. And, well, I don't even know if we want to. Well, you know what? No, we got we got time. We got time, Trey. We got time. <laughs> the, BY, the BYU thing from Saturday, man. And this is one where the horns down shirts. 
when the kids in the front row, students in the front row, were told to take the horns down shirts off. Here's the problem they, with they that. They told to take those shirts off? Not by Texas. And this is where I'm going with this. Texas did not say anything. And look, you can't really complain about what happens after necessarily after you do what, what Rodney did. And then that goes viral. I'll still stand by. I don't think Rodney thought it was going to go viral to the extent that it did, but it was just an in the moment thing. And here, here we are. Well, some BYU kids showed up with those horns down shirts and you can actually kind of see when you go back in the, the broadcast, they did a wide, like a low wide shot where it's zooming out and the kids are like taking the shirts off. And I think they just had other, like another white shirt on underneath it or whatever. The BYU coach said after the game, he pulled the whole, like, that's not what we're about. That's not what we do. Like we appreciate our fans. And you know, those are just some overeager kids there in the front row. Well, then all of that stuff gets put back onto Twitter and social media sites for fodder with no context. And that's the problem with all this. Then it there's no context. If you're going to tweet that or you're going to say that, you need to make it clear that Texas did not ask for those shirts to be removed because immediately then everyone unfairly makes the connection that, oh, well, Texas, you know, one coach, one coach at Texas had a problem with that or said he had a problem with that. And then now it all of a sudden is assumed that Texas asked for that to happen, which is not the case. Oh, man. So that whole thing, what? I really hope, I really hope that that situation Saturday was the last we will have to hear of that shit the rest of the season. It's not. Why? Because it'll have, oh, yeah. Well, I forgot what TCU's doing. Yeah. They're doing the opposite. What are they doing? There's something they have like horn. Let me uh, double check this. After I just went off about context, I better make sure I'm right about this. <laughs> it's just not There's, because that's just the name of the game. I mean, you're going to see more horns down stuff the rest of the way because Texas is going to play, play games on the road. Yeah. And like, Flash the horns down, and they're probably going to wear shirts that indicate as much, too. Oh, that's what it is, yeah. Barstool Sports tweeted yesterday, Barstool TCU donating 500 horns down shirts to the student section for their game against Texas on Saturday. So they're, and hey, I'm a, probably not a bad idea. They're doing the opposite of what BYU did. They're just going <laughs> to, they're going to tell them to wear the shirts and tell them not to take it off. I mean, look, based on both fan bases, that tracks. <laughs> it's nothing against TCU people either, by the way, but TCU people are not afraid to talk some trash. BYU, much less likely. Yeah, part of it. I had tried I mean, to ask a TCU a question along the lines of the, uh, the soaking question that I asked a couple of Mormons in the stands for Texas BYU and football. I would have probably ended up in a fight. Those guys just look terrified. <laughs> it looked like they'd just seen their mother in a bra. <laughs> uh, when was this? This is the Texas BYU football game. There were. Oh, this year. Duh. Four guys. Yeah. They were wearing the short sleeve button down white collared shirt with the ties. And I called them over because my buddy was telling me about soaking you heard what have you heard of soaking before? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's not as I'll, I'll explain soaking if you would like, but I <laughs> I asked them, do you 
is, is soaking a real thing in the Mormon community and they look horrified. And then one of them like very nervously answered no. And they pretty much ran off at that point. And I said, yeah, that's what I'm t- tell this guy because I say soaking is BS. It's such a ludicrous concept, but you haven't asked, but I'm going to tell you anyhow. So soaking <laughs> I didn't know if you wanted me to is uh and I, Hey, it's unfiltered. You got yeah. time. Let's so soaking is a way around the whole virginity bit in Mormon culture, Ooh. I guess, where two people come together and they get naked. And um, let's just say insertion happens without movement. And then somebody else is apparently supposed to come into the room and like shake the bed. So that even though the two people aren't moving around, so they're not being uh, sinful fornicants, they're still getting to have a version of the fun part of coitus. I'm glad these gentlemen were mortified by your question. (laughs) Yeah, they should have been. (laughs) A few people would have either proudly embraced it or tried to fight me, one of the two. Well, yeah, I mean, they probably should have because there wasn't much fight on the field that day. No, no fight, was. fight in the stands would have been, would have been better. That was the Malik Murphy legacy game, Trey. Yeah, that was a Man. pathetic game for BYU. And you were Malik Murphy legacy game, and you were busy just harassing some, some nice, some nice Mormon guys. Look, we'd already gotten past the first like fifteen to twenty scripted plays, so the offense had really slowed down by that point. I, I had time to kill. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Hey, speaking of football, I've got a question for you as somebody who is extremely bright. Oh, I'm not just saying this histrionically because you and I are talking right now. I value your opinion as much as just about anybody's right now because you right. are on the money with your analysis over and over again. So I want to get your thoughts on this. This is a question I've been asking everybody all week long. So on three.com came out with a ranking of their top college football head coaches a couple of days ago. Number one on that list was Kirby Smart, as everybody can guess, Georgia head coach. Who is the second best coach in college football right now? Because I think it's a wide open discussion after number one. Wow. Yeah, that is, I mean, yeah, the landscape, and we can get into this more, like the landscape's wide open for Sark to stake his claim to that spot if he's not the one I don't gosh I mean that's really difficult because it's a lot of guys who have really good teams and have had success but haven't necessarily sustained it it's like you could make an argument I mean you you honestly could make an argument for Sark like you could make an argument for Lincoln Riley you could make an argument for Dan Lanning for Ryan Day for who else am I missing um you're asking me who I think? Yeah. I mean, I'm, people are going to call bias BS on this. Like, I think it's Lincoln Riley. Mm. Is that? <laughs> are you going to take back? Are you going to take back that entire lead up to the question about how you uh, <laughs> buttered me up about how? how uh, I, am I am questioning your judgment here, but I mean, I think I think I'll. I think, for the, I think for the sole purpose of the development of the quarterbacks. And I know that's a whole Twitter debate there where people want to 
uh, have no, you know, people want to just throw nuance out the window. Like, like, yes, these are not all guys that he recruited out of high school. Well, although Caleb Williams falls into both, he recruited Caleb Williams out of high school and then coached him for one year at OU and then he transferred. So Caleb Williams might actually be the best example because he was recruited by Lincoln Riley out of high school, played for him for a year at OU and then transferred and played for him for two years at USC, won the Heisman trophy. Now he's about to be the number one pick in the draft, not to mention all the other guys that transferred there and that he developed then into another level, took Jalen hurts to another level, took Baker to another level, took Kyler Murray to another level. I mean, you, you name it. Um, but I mean, all those other guys too, like, if you compare Lincoln Riley, I'll give him the edge just because, yeah, they didn't have a great season this past year. Um, but, I mean, he he has been to a college football playoff. He's similar resume, I guess even similar resume to Sark, but he's just sustained it at the program he's been, or at the two programs he's been at slightly longer. Um, so, I don't so know who's Riley so, comes in at number nine and on threes rankings. Lincoln does? Yeah. I mean, I may like, again, this is totally a, and for everybody listening, like this is off, this is off the noggin too. Like I didn't, I don't know the list. Trey and I didn't discuss this topic ahead of time. So, um, but like who, who do you, who was number two on the list now that I, well, let's find out. All right. Brian Kelly, number two on the list. How about that? Brian Kelly. What? Oh God. See, I knew there was one where I was going to go, Oh my God. Dabo. But the interesting thing about Dabo is, yeah, Dabo, I mean, Dabo, you could make an argument for number one just on body of work. But if we're just going top 10 head coaches, I'd want to blank slate my program. We're starting over right now. Yeah, Kirby Smart, number one. You know what these things, you know, we, we have a lot of great friends at On3, Trey. I'm going to tell you what I think about, about these lists in a lot of ways. I think they do these lists. And then they throw in a couple of ones in there that they know are going to make people lose their shit and engage with the tweet or the Facebook post, Instagram, whatever it is, and comment. And they know they're going to get engagement from that. They know that putting Lincoln Riley number nine and putting Brian Kelly number two, even though they, what, basically have the same accomplishments? I mean, in, in recent memory, and Kelly's been doing it longer. But I mean, they both have a playoff appearance, and they both got shellacked. Well, actually, Lincoln Lincoln did better in the playoff, I think, than BK did. Yes, he did. So you know what? I, based on what you just said, I think that's a great point. What they probably did is take Brian Kelly's name, which was probably between Dabo and Mike Norvell at six, and they just slid him up to two to say, "Hey, let's get right. people talking about this list, this crazy list that has Brian Kelly as the second best head coach in college football." Nobody in the right fucking mind believes Brian Kelly is the second best coach in college football right now. Mm-hmm. My answer is probably Kalen DeBoer right now. And is it recency bias? Absolutely. But he's also won everywhere that he's gone. And he did a great job of turning around the Washington program in very short order. And he's about to take over for the GOAT, or he has taken over for the GOAT in Tuscaloosa. So I think DeBoer makes a lot of sense at two. Ryan Day, people are down on him right now. But let's also not forget that he has won his fair share of Big Ten championships and made multiple college football playoffs as well. Yeah, and he's a field goal last year in the semifinal against Georgia away from, I think, being a national champion. I mean, like maybe that's being unfair to TCU, but to kind of do the 
almost transitive property of what Georgia did to TCU is what Ohio State would have done. But that that game last year in the semifinal or two years ago. Oh, technically. yeah. 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 Not not this past year. Sorry. Yeah. Still feel like we're in this season, but got to turn the page. <laughs> um, yeah. The one two years ago, technically. Th- that semifinal felt like it was the national championship game. Like, especially once TCU beat Michigan before that. Um, now I can say that that that's that's like hindsight, a little bit of hindsight's 2020 for me there, but still I think people most people would agree like Ohio State wins a national championship if they make that kick in the semifinal. Yeah. There's two names on this list that would not have sniffed the list a year ago if a similar list comes out a year ago. Steve Sarkeesian, of course, and then also Mike Norvell. Yeah, it just goes to show how quickly the tide turns, the uh, public perception of somebody turns in a single season. But I would say in Sark's case, it, people are also paying attention to his off-season roster construction as well, and looking at what he's done or what he did in January. Now that we're in February, and seeing that he has a lot of returning talent on next year's roster too, and has this team primed to compete for a conference title their first year in the SEC. Well, and I think if you wanted to make the argument for Ryan Day or Steve Sarkeesian, like if you, between those two guys, I would give it to Sark because of what he had to overcome to get them back to this point in three years. Whereas Ryan Day, it's not taking anything away from the guy. It's just pointing out that, the dude was set on third base when he took over the job. And again, I know anybody listening is probably like, wait, that's what this dumbass, this dumbass just made the argument for Lincoln Riley. So it happened to Lincoln Riley, but you know, he's been doing it a little bit longer as a head coach than Ryan day, but between day and Sark, like I'll take Sark right there just because of the extra hurdle he had to jump over given the five and seven season, the roster he inherited, the rebuild, that he undertook and, and him not kind of trying to do it the shortcut way, but actually building it the right way. That's one thing now too, I think we can say in hindsight, um, well, we know Sark built it the right way, but that's not always an easy decision. And you're kind of seeing that with Lincoln Riley a little bit too, where he came in and just wanted to kind of do the portal and keep the guys he wanted to keep on the roster that he inherited. But Clearly, need, there's a lot of work to do. A year behind his tenure at USC than Sark is at at, um, at UT. But Lincoln needs to go the Sark route of building it through the trenches, building it with the big humans. Um, so tons of credit to Sark for actually like having the stones to come in and say, this might really suck at the beginning, but we're going we're gonna to build it the right way and take the lumps early on, no matter what those are even if he never thought it was going to be as bad as five and seven and here, here they are now, you know, and again, there's, there's different ways to do it because then you look at Kalen DeBoer and you're like, well, dude went to the national championship game in his second season. So he didn't need to do that, but not every situation is the same. Not every philosophy of how you build a program when you take it over is the same either. That is true. Dabo obviously belongs somewhere on this list, but you do have to take the last couple of years into account. And until Dabo can prove that he is willing to adjust to the times and become more active in the transfer portal, and I'm guessing Clemson has leaned into the NIL thing at this point, 
He's not I mean, a middle of the road coach because he does still have those two championships. But a lot of people this week have made that Mac Brown post 2009 comparison. And there's something to that right now. And it's up to Dabo Sweeney to prove that sort of commentary wrong. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the last three years have not, not been good for him because having a coach who's what won two national championships at number six on this list after Jim Harbaugh left for the NFL post national championship at Michigan and the greatest coach of all time and Nick Saban retired for him to still be six on that list with those two guys leaving and completely leaving the landscape wide open for, you know, the next great coach to come in and try to make a Saban-esque run. If that's even possible in modern college football, that's, that doesn't speak well to how Dabo's perceived you know, outside of Clemson or maybe even in, you know, within the Clemson fan base. What was that dude, Tyler and Spartanburg or whatever, the dude that <laughs> Dabo got into it with during the season. That yeah, guy guy made some decent takes, made some decent points. So <laughs> I think his lack of his almost his almost arrogant and aggressive lack of willingness to evolve with the NIL, the portal, all these different things has really hurt him. I think if he just sort of did it quietly, it would have been different, but man, like the way he's done it, of just gung ho, like anti NIL, anti portal. I think that's, and then them obviously being basically a nine win team the last three years has, has not helped at all. If this has not already occurred, Kyle Whittingham has taken the Gary Patterson doing more with less trophy. <laughs> former coach in Fort Worth because Kyle Whittingham does belong on this list. I would, I would maybe even argue him over Brian Kelly, assuming that Brian Kelly did come in at six. I would argue Mike and probably Mike Norvell too, as a matter of fact. Mike Norvell had a great season with Florida State this last year. They had everything going for them too, by the way. But he was also good at Memphis prior to that. Kyle Whittingham, I'm a big fan of him. If for whatever reason there were another coaching change necessary here in Austin. In the next couple of years, I would hope that there's at least a conversation had with Kyle Whittingham to gauge his interest. I think eight is perfect. And again, like any with any list, you have to you have to like they didn't do this here, but I think everyone knows what they're getting at when they, you look at the names on the list. But if you do a list, you kind of do have to throw some context or some guidelines in there because whether it's top ten players in NBA history. Like, well, do you put guys in from the forties or different, you know, there's always something in a, in a list where you have to say, okay, we got to put some parameters around this. And on that list, clearly that list is 80, 90% of the list is guys that are at places where you could truly win a national championship. Yeah. And I don't think anybody thinks Utah's winning a national championship. And at the same time, nobody's going to diminish or doubt what Kyle Whittingham can do as a head coach, because like you just said, the dude is freaking awesome. I mean, he's the master, like Gary Patterson comparison is great. The master of doing the most with, I don't want to say the least, but just doing a ton with not as much as a true blue blood power five football program. I'm going to pulled up his, his seasons. I mean, this was like a disappointing year for them, but that, you know, the Cam Rising injury and all that, they went eight and five. Two years prior to that, 10 and four, 10 and four, 
lost in the Rose Bowl to teams that were significantly more talented than they are. Throw they went three and two in 2020. I pretty much throw that out for everybody, especially when you only played five games. Mm. Eleven and three the year before that. Nine and five the year before that. Seven and six rough year. Nine and four. Ten and three. Nine and four. And then a couple of rough three years, two, five and seven seasons and an eight and five season to start his tenure. Like I went obviously in reverse order there of most recent first, but that's, I mean, nine and 10 win seasons at Utah, basically penciling that in every year is really damn impressive. Yeah, it is. Utah's lucked out too. They had urban Meyer at one point pre urban Meyer turning full on bad guy. And he obviously yeah. helped them do a special season with Alex Smith and then to get Kyle Whittingham. Good on them for their hires from a perceived position of weakness. Hey, speaking of head coaches, did you see that the Boston College head coach, Jeff Halfley, did you see the move that he made this week? Left to go be the Packers, D.C.? Yeah, we're probably about to see more of these sorts of situations play out. There's some rumblings right now that Chip Kelly – could find his way back to the NFL as an offensive coordinator. College coaches are fed up with the amount of work required that goes well beyond the scope of coaching football. College coaches, Trey, that are that are at schools like a BC or a UCLA, their football programs just specifically, UCLA basketball is a different story. But those two programs are great examples of places where like, you're expected to be competitive. You're expected to be a couple games over 500. You're expected to go to a bowl game every year. Like you're expected to steal some LA recruits at UCLA from, um, from USC and from Oregon and from some of the other true blue bloods who invest like a program that's trying to win a national championship. And I don't know the Boston college dynamic as well, but I totally agree that we're going to see a lot more of that because these coaches now are going to be at, at those kind of schools and they're going to go, like especially a chip Kelly, who's been there, done that at all these different programs, done the NFL head coaching gig, you know, it took, took Oregon to new Heights when he was there. Like is that, that's not a young coach trying to prove that he can do it at that level and do it almost pull a Kyle Whittingham and do less with more or do more with less. And they're going to sit and go like, I don't need to put up with this unless I'm trying to become the next head coach at Texas or in Alabama or show that I can do this here and then get a blue blood job because they're just at such a disadvantage, even more than they already were because the NIL dollars combined with the lack of prestige around their sport at their particular school is just going to make their job way more difficult than it already was. I mean, the, the negative recruiting I'm sure that goes on when, you know, let's say a, mid four-star recruit is between BC Pitt, and he's got an Ohio state offer, but he's going to be in the lower realm of Ohio state recruits. Maybe that kid before would say, the hell, like I'll go to Pitt. Look at the guys that Pitt's put in the league. Look at the guys that BC's put Zay flowers played at BC, Not all the guys that Pitt's put out over the years. Like those are programs with like real dudes that have hall of famers that have come out of those programs and even then guys like Zay Flowers recently, you know, they, uh, yeah, I think guys are going to say like, well, I'll just go take the NIL money, at least initially at a place like Ohio state. <laughs> yeah. From the ESPN piece that reported this Halfley news first, 
They were told by a source, quote, college coaching has become fundraising, NIL, and recruiting your own team and transfers. There's no time to coach football anymore. So just understand what you're getting into as a college coach. Apparently, it kept Rod Wright from joining the Texas staff. They pressed him on just what it's going to take for him to be a successful recruiter. And he said, you know what? I'm good with the NFL lifestyle. It's a grind during the season, but you do get a little bit of an offseason. And it takes a special sort of person to constantly suck up to kids who are in their late teen years or early 20s. Pretty much nonstop from before you ever get them on campus, but once you get them on campus, making sure you're keeping them happy all the way until that last year of eligibility. And there are exceptions, of course. I don't think Steve Sarkeesian is having to ride. This is a very unique situation here. Somebody like Arch Manning too hard, but there are plenty of other guys that he is having to stay on top of and that his coaches are having to stay on top of as well. It's And talking to people who are really connected behind the scenes, I've talked with Justin Wells about this on my radio show. Like there is a a sense across that job or those jobs that you're going to see the burnout rate really start to explode in the next few years of guys who choose to go down to high school or try and make that move up to the NFL rather than sticking in college. So I don't even I'm going to tell a story about one of, one of my buddies. I don't even, I, I don't know if he wants me to share this, but I won't, I won't say the school or the names or where he was at or anything like that. One of my good friends, he was a staffer at a group of five program, worked his way up about my age. So, you know, like he's late twenties, early thirties ish, that, that age range, he got out of the business. I mean, not for other reasons, not for all for the total landscape, it was a grind even before the landscape changed like this. But for him, he one of the most interesting things he told me was it changes the way that you coach your players almost. Like it, it kind of has to, because you were saying like Sark not having to necessarily ride a guy like Arch Manning or even a better example. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but Bijan um, would say Bijan right. Austin love Texas. You're not gonna have to worry as much about him. Okay, let's even say like uh even a different type of example like a Jaden blue, a guy where you're like, we want you to stick around, but you're going to have to wait your turn. And, and maybe Sark at Texas have such a unique culture built where they don't have to do this. I'm not going to speak for them, but I know my buddy was telling me that a lot of coaches feel like they're almost walking on eggshells with the way they have to coach sometimes because you don't want to like have a kid just like kids can just go. And again, I don't have necessarily an issue with that, but now when you throw in the NIL money, whether it's, it's both, it's just both sides of the coin now, because it used to be like, or at first, I guess it was like, Hey, a kid, you know, isn't getting playing time, the playing time that he wants, then maybe transfers and and maybe it's worth it for that to go from a P five to a G five school, sit out a year or whatever. Um, But there's the other side of the coin now too, where it's like, Guys go off at a, I mean, Trey Moore is an example. I don't know the details of his NIL rules and stuff like that or his NIL deals, but he goes off at UTSA for two years. He's all conference and now he goes to Texas. And that's great that he gets to move up because just like Jeff Trailer may get to move up at one point, he, Jeff Trailer did move up from going from high school coaching to a position coach in college to a head coach at a group of five school like UTSA. So I'm all for the upward mobility of everyone, but the dynamic of it is, interesting and it's definitely hurting those schools and making it more difficult to recruit and it almost for some coaches i think makes them feel like 
they can't coach kids as hard as maybe they could before just because of the risk of, you know, hey, if I coach this kid too hard and he's not playing, but I'm on his ass all the time in practice, is he just going to get up and go like, screw this crap. Like, I don't have to deal with this. I can go somewhere else. Not that that would be the right decision for them, but there's just so many different factors with that now too, whether it's, like I said, the kid not playing, that you don't want to ride too hard because you don't want him to leave and go see, try to seek greener pastures somewhere else, even if that's not what's really out there. Or the kid who you develop, the diamond in the rough that you find, and then now they go off to get a payday at a Power 5 school. But basically, my my buddy was just saying the landscape of it, to your point, is just burning coaches out in so many different ways. And it already was a burnout type of industry. That is an interesting aspect to all of this. And I think ultimately it's up to the coach to understand that line and to not go over that proverbial line with a sort of verbal, maybe even a physical abuse and trying to get through to a guy. Like there are plenty of coaches out there who don't believe in yelling to get points across. And as a parent, I try not to yell. Sometimes these things happen. But when I'm doing my best parenting, I'm able to stay calm, even as one of my kids is maybe pressing my buttons and calmly explain what happened, what went wrong, and help them come to their own conclusion as to maybe a different way to handle that in the future. But there are a lot of guys who feel like they've got to, they've got to chew a player's ass to get through to him, and I, I get that. There are some guys that you do have to do that with to get through to them, but I would also argue that and trusting yourself and knowing where that line is and making sure you're not going over the line. If the kid can't handle a little bit of tough love and like true tough love, not like verbal or physical abuse where it's like, this is fucking ridiculous. You're just being an alpha asshole right now. And that's not doing anybody any good. But if the kid can't take a sort of positive, tough love, then that kid may not cut out. It may not be cut out for your program. Sometimes yeah. it's okay to let players like that walk if they are, if they just prove themselves to be a little bit too soft in a situation where you're like, no, I handled this maturely. I was, I was a little bit hard on him, but I didn't go over any lines. He's just a very sensitive kid and maybe he is better off someplace else. Well, and, and to almost play devil's advocate to my own point, the other side of it, I guess is a positive maybe, unintended consequence is it does for some coaches who would have that unnecessary asshole that you mentioned in them to dial that in and force themselves to be a little bit more in control of the pulse of the team, the mood of their team, the individual things that make certain players tick like stuff that coaches should be doing anyway. Like everyone that says, Oh, like we, we have this way that we do things and we treat players like, no, not that's, such crap. All of it, anybody that's played on a sports team at any level, I don't care if it was freaking anything above T-ball, if it was 7U baseball and you're trying to win, not every player is treated the same. Not every coach treats players the same way. Position coaches don't treat players the same way that a head coach treats a player necessarily. You know, so I think it and this is another thing that we've credited Sark and his staff on a bunch, it forces I think forces coaches to adapt a little bit and it puts more emphasis on building real genuine relationships and checking on players and truly caring about that side of it too. And I agree with you. Tough love is 
absolutely necessary in sports and in life in general. But now, I mean, we saw it with Sark this last year. How often did those players talk about how those relationships helped them, whether it was with Sark or with a position coach or with somebody that, whose name you don't even know on staff, could be a trainer or something like that, you know, but just fostering that positive culture is so important for whether it's, I keep going back to the Jaden Blue example, a guy that like, I think if he left, now, now I think if he left, people wouldn't, it wouldn't really make sense. I mean, it's like, dude, you're going to be part of a two-headed monster with Baxter next year. You're in a great spot. But if he had left last year during the spring, I don't think anybody would have blamed him. I think people would have been like, hey, like, makes sense. You want to go play this year. You don't want to sit for another year. Um, but who knows? I'm not going to speak for him, but potentially a situation like that could have been avoided or he could have stayed because of the way he felt about the culture and the relationships he has with coaches and all that. And uh, one other example I I will use to to your point of how this is just just the overall macro of how this is changing the entire landscape of the sport. Ryan Day gave up play calling. And yeah. I think that's a huge deal. I think it's something that you're going to see a lot more of moving forward. And when I just looked that up to, to confirm that, Eli Drinkwitz, apparently before the season, going into the season, gave up play calling. And I don't know exactly – I didn't have time to read exactly why – but with Ryan Day, it seems like it's because of all these other things that go into being a head coach. Like we always used to joke about how great, half joking about how great of a CEO Mac was. Like Mac just had that CEO vibe, whether it was in the press conferences, in the living room, talking to recruits. That CEO like mindset and way of running a football program is more important than ever right now in the sport. Oh, 1998 Mac Brown would kill. He did a great job previously, obviously, although he had a hard time in big games up to a point. And thankfully, Vince Young and some others helped to turn those fortunes around. But that Mac Brown style would absolutely crush it in modern times. Now, I think current Mac, he's in North Carolina and he probably gets to stay until he wants to leave, and thus things get really bad, I guess. He's starting to slip again. He's starting to lose it. I forget if you and I played the clip of him. Uh him going off on Dave Dorn and NC state calling his team pieces of shit. And he's actually saying pieces of shit over and over again in the press conference. It's actually a funny piece of audio that I don't know if we still have it in our archives. I've got it somewhere on my computer. I Mac always had the ability to be at least a little bit petulant, even at Texas, especially at Texas. I should correct myself there, but it feels like he is maybe getting a little, old man on that job now look they were great the first half of last season but then he had that classic mac brown second half of the season swoon and they didn't exactly uh goes go out guns a blazing but um yeah mac brown old school mac brown would have a field day in modern college football because he did hire guys to recruit of course but also to take care of all the football stuff and he did the glad handing. He kissed babies. He shook hands. Guy has the ability to remember names like nobody I've ever seen, uh, past, or pr- past, present, and probably future too. And he was so good at that part of the job. He did what he talked about in that introductory press conference that I think Daryl Royal had made the recommendation to him about getting all the BBs back in the box because different entities were all over the place and he needed everybody aligned once again. And Mac was the perfect person to come in and do that. Do you feel like that's sort of what we're seeing right now? The, just that word alignment 
whether it's all the different things, whether it's what you're seeing on the field with the success, but also, you know, Del Conte was the one who, you know, Del Conte and L type and, you know, the regents donors, whatever, you know, seems like there was alignment there at least initially on spearheading the hire to get Sark. It's working out right now with Sark. Um, All the additions that they're making to, or that they've made to the fan experience at UT football games, whether it was Bevo Boulevard, the light show this year, all these different things that they've done, you know, it's just completely, it just seems like every, everybody's rowing in the same direction right now. And there was a long time where you and I were both here, Trey, especially while I was in college, whether it was the, I got the end of Mac early, Charlie strong. And then when I came here, you know, as a professional in media, the Tom Herman era, which had its highs and lows definitely had its, you know, you can't knock the highs that it did have, but it didn't seem like everybody was rowing in the right direction. And I just get the sense right now that, you know, from the administ the administration to the regents, to the donors, it kind of seems like um, everyone's rowing the right direction, but also you could, you could say that it feels that way when, you know, you go 12 and two and almost make the national championship game and, make the playoff and you're moving to the sec, but even the move to the sec. I mean, is that, is that a sense that you get from your perspective? Yeah, I think all of those things do point to a sort of cohesion that's necessary for any program, but especially at Texas. And one other aspect that I would put into the cohesive category that is maybe as important as all of those things with the exception of Steve Sarkeesian being on the sideline is how quickly Texas is able to get its ducks in a row in the NIL landscape with its collective, making sure that T's were crossed, I's were dotted. And it's a reason. I don't know if it's the biggest reason or part of the reason. It's, it's definitely a big reason why Texas has been so successful on the recruiting trail and the transfer portal. I talked to somebody who's really smart, but I disagree with him on this a few weeks back about Nick Saban quitting at Alabama and why he quit. And it's my belief and a lot of other people's belief that he just didn't want to have to deal with this anymore, that it was just way too much work for a guy who has already proven himself time and time again. And I said something to the effect of like, you know, he's clamoring for Alabama to get it together with the NIL with their collective. And he said, well, they have it better off than Texas does right now. I'm like, I don't know if I believe that to be the case because yeah, they've gone out and gotten some guys here and there. They got Jameer Gibbs from Georgia Tech and a couple of other guys, they've also lost a lot in the transfer portal too. And Nick Saban realized that to keep his roster intact, he's going to have to suck up to these guys more often or hire coaches that are willing to suck up to these guys a little bit more often. It just wasn't worth it to him anymore. But I don't think Alabama's collective or their NIL abilities, maybe their fundraising is on par with Texas, but I just don't think that they have it as good as what Texas – how Texas is doing it right now. I mean, we, we both live in Austin. Like we're, we're UT. We're, we're both UT fans, UT grads. Like I, when, when Texas is humming, like you have the city of Austin and the growth that, that it's had over the last two, three decades. And then you have UT humming the way that it is like, that's a, that's really tough to recruit against. Like I would not, to your point about Alabama and them potentially having it better. Like I would not want to recruit against Texas right now. Now 
nothing that we're saying guarantees that they're going to sustain this level of success that they had this year. Like that's not what we're saying, but like the pitch for Texas right now is like, can you think of a stronger pitch? I mean, clearly Ohio state's got something good going on, but I don't know if they're just throwing money at kids. I mean, that's a, it's a great place to play football. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's not <laughs> me taking a shot by any means. Like Columbus is a great city. The school that they, you know, the, the school there, the program that they have there, the history they have there, the conference they're in is, you know, barely one notch below the SEC. So, um, but yeah, like right now with Texas, I just think it feels like it's kind of a, like a freight train just going full speed ahead. And this is two guys, two guys right here, two guys right here that wouldn't, that wouldn't say that if we didn't believe it, Trey. No, I definitely wouldn't. <laughs> I have no problem saying the opposite. As a matter of fact, I've been called a fool or an asshole at times where I turned out to be right. But hey, I got to call it like I see it, you know? CB says he remembers your interviews with all the different Texas ADs. Is there is there a favorite that comes to mind for you? Dude, that was a lot of fun. I may piss people off, but again, it's me. Uh, Steve Patterson was an interesting one because he hadn't talked to anybody on the record since he left the Texas job. And I got... We got, I want to say, close to an hour-long conversation in, and we covered the gambit. But talking to Perrin was awesome. I'm still in sporadic contact with Mike Perrin. Great dude. Underrated person in the history of this athletics department. As a matter of fact, I was at a game a couple years ago when he was getting inducted into the uh, the Ring of Honor, the Hall of Honor. I forget what Texas calls it. I think it's the Hall of Honor. Hall and of Honor. Uh, I recognized that it was Perrin before anybody else did. And I made sure I was standing up and cheering really loudly for him when they announced his name over the loudspeaker. That was awesome. Texted him afterwards, congratulated him. He said it was really cool. So uh, that was great. I mean, talking to the loss was uh, really interesting and getting his take on what was then the, uh, the landscape in college sports and just being able to envision what was coming down the pike. And then, Talking to CDC is always an interesting experience. He is really good. And this is not a knock on him, by the way. He's really good at um, giving full answers. But the last question I asked him, I could tell he was looking at the clock. And I was told by Bianco that I had exactly until this time. I mean, he spoke right up to the point where the universal clock, which includes the clock on my MacBook, got right to 20 after the top of the hour. And then he ended his answer. And I just wanted to be like, wow, way to stick the landing there, Chris. <laughs> but I had to give him credit. I mean, he gave a full, full answer. He probably gave a little bit more than a full answer too, if I'm being completely honest, since he did kind of filibuster that last answer to get all the way to 20. But he, we also had some, uh, I also had some fun with him too. I asked him about the next time he hears about the wrong shade of orange on the television screen. If the next time he hears that would be, uh, if he would be, or if he's fine, if he would never hear that again. And he laughed at that. Cause he gets that question all the time. I think I also asked him about people who just come at him with the most trivial BS on Twitter and how he's just always so gracious and how he responds to everybody. Like I, I would not have that in me at, I would either ignore block or say something that would probably get me fired as Texas AD because there are some people that bring, come to him with some stupid shit. I mean, he responds to, I would, and I, again, maybe he'd be the better person to ask on this. That would be an interesting question to ask him. Like, where do you draw the line on what you respond to? It's obviously you can't respond to literally everything, but I feel like he responds to everything that's basically a coherent tweet at him. Yeah. Like if the tweet is coherent and like 
makes some like I don't want to say like the the take or whatever the opinion is makes sense, but like it's in a sentence that's legible. <laughs> He'll pretty much respond to that person no matter what. Which is always like joyful and cheery and optimistic. It's like, man, good, good for you. I mean, I see you, you've seen this, I'm sure. He's just like walking around Bevo Boulevard at times yeah. by himself, just walking around, checking out the scene. We've, we've interviewed him like multiple times, especially when Bevo Boulevard was, was early in its infancy and definitely year one. And then the years they made changes or different little things here or there, we would like pop by and talk to him. He'd talk to us for, two, three minutes, we'd get a com- couple answers with him on the record. It would help the show out a bunch. Texas fans obviously love it. And, you know, he's he's been not, nothing but great to us in that regard. And I think he was the perfect fit for, going back to our conversation about the alignment right now, for a modern athletic director. Um, I mean, all those guys minus Patterson, like, did, did a fantastic job in their role. I mean, DeLoss is an absolute legend for what he did at Texas and, um, you know, just his entire career that I think spanned three decades at UT. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Steve Patterson took the whole finding ways to cut trim the unnecessary fat too much to heart. Well, and trimming fat, and then there's not allowing yourself to be Texas anymore with certain things. And he, he swung that pendulum way too far in the other direction. Like I don't know. It's not pro sports. Right, exactly. And he was treating it too much like pro sports, too focused on trips to Dubai and trying to have a team shop in China. It's just like, no, we need to focus on what's happening here in Austin, please. And meanwhile, he was being way too negligent with coaches, not receiving, I forget what the story was, not receiving tickets or having to make their own way to AT&T Stadium before the UCLA game. There were problems with the basketball team. He made an ultimating with Rick Barnes. I don't blame him for this, by the way. Rick Barnes needed to figure something out. And Rick Barnes was un- unwilling to make a change after his last year. And ultimately that led to him losing his job. I don't fault him for hiring Shaka either. That was one of the hot names in college basketball coaching circles at the time. Even if I didn't necessarily think that was going to be a good hire in the moment, I understood why Shaka Smart was hired. Um the, uh, the the Texas baseball team being forced to ride buses to games where they were traditionally taking planes like that really rubbed Augie the wrong way. I know that for a fact. And he voiced his displeasure with Steve Patterson, who didn't change that. Um, and then there were a couple of other things like that where it's just like, dude, that, stop, stop trying to nickel and dime people around here. There are ways that you can cut the BS without completely screwing the programs over in the process. And that's where Mike Perrin comes in. Speaking of like getting BBs back in the box or cohesion or whatever word you want to use, like he really steadied that ship at a time where he, we desperately needed it. Desperately needed it. Yeah. I mean, and he's a, a true longhorn too, which like you said, the BBs back in the box is the, is a great, Great quote. I love all the little isms and stuff that <laughs> that Mac used. Not that he all came up with himself, obviously, but <laughs> that he used and kind of brought back. But but yeah, then I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. And then bringing it back to CDC now, um, you know, I and mean, it's not it's not just the Twitter stuff. It's the hires he made. It's the upgrades to facilities and um, all those different things and the money that he was able to raise for like, dude, the Moody Center. I mean, the 
locker room. I know people roll their eyes at a lot of stuff with football of just how much money's involved and, oh, we need this and all these different things that they need. It's for the average person, it can be an eye roll. But you know what? You you don't roll your eyes when your team's winning like they are right now on the field. And keeping up with the facilities arms race is an absolute must when you're at a school like Texas. If you want your team to perform to the expectation that you have, then that's what you need. And he's he's been great in realizing all that and um, the way that he's done it too. Just you know, very modern approach of in realizing what makes Texas Texas and what makes this a special place, but then also evolving with the times and keeping up with everything you know to keep Texas in that same that same conversation and that that same regard nationally. And hey, whatever whatever the guy's doing, whatever his team's doing, like you know they're they're evolving with the times and they're still making a shit ton of money for the yes. for the school. That is <laughs> Which at the end of the day is his job. That is a big part of his job for sure. All right, well, there is one more college football story that we need to get to. First though, we're going to give some love to some advertisers, to those who support Texas Sports Unfiltered. We greatly appreciate that. Starting with our friends at Covert BK. Hi, I'm Dan Covert with my wife, Hayden. Welcome to Covert BK. Our newest location in the gorgeous Hill Country includes Buick, GMC, Cadillac, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, and Ram, and hundreds of pre-owned and certified vehicles for you to choose from. We have three service departments that are ready to take care of your car, truck, or SUV with 86 service bays to accommodate any repair and get you in and out quickly. Come visit us today to select the vehicle you've been dreaming about. Covert, born and raised in Austin. Also want to give some love to BetUS. The Super Bowl is coming. If you're looking for a place to make some money during the NFL playoffs, you've got to go to BetUS. BetUS is the best online sportsbook and casino out there. Game lines, props, over-unders, you name it, they got it. Plus, it's not just the NFL. You can win big on college basketball, the NBA, NHL, and more. You're watching on our YouTube channel right now. Just click that link in the video description to sign up. If you're listening on the app, just click explore our socials on the app and then click the BetUS link there. Once again, best place to bet on sports is BetUS. Find the links in the YouTube description or on our free app itself. And also a word from, if I can find him here. Oh, there we go. Tom McKay of Audiovisual Consultations. Hi, this is Tom McKay with Audiovisual Consultations. And Camilla McKay. Hey, kid, you want to hear a dad joke? Sure, old man. A guy walks into a flat... Oh, that was terrible. A guy walks into a store and buys an 85-inch flat screen for 2500 bucks. <laughs> I wasn't done with my joke yet. Yeah, you were. Here, I got one. What's worse than paying for one overpriced surround sound speaker? I don't know what. Paying for two overpriced surround sound speakers? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, here at Audiovisual, we do like to laugh, and by calling 512-255-8678 you can share in that laughter stop paying extra for lesser quality and visit avconsultations.com today all right all right you got me going now one more all right here we go a guy walks into a bar and then a speaker and then a projector all right all right, all right. i think they get it kid give us a call at 512-255-8678 or see us online at avconsultations.com and all jokes aside remember to hug your kids laugh with strangers and make love to whoever the hell you want just give us a call 512 512- one two two five five eight six seven eight. All right. The big story from the college sports world that we have not touched on just yet. Boy, it's been a bad week for the NCAA, Jeff. First, it is learned that they are once again investigating Tennessee for violations related to NIL. 
Tennessee officials come out, the school chancellor, the athletics director, and say this is BS. We're being made an example of. We refuse to accept this. Now the states of Tennessee and uh, South Carolina, I believe, are suing the NCAA, another antitrust case that they're going to have to deal with. I mean, I feel like they're dealing with eight to ten lawsuits at this point. And now news comes out earlier this morning that the Big Ten and SEC have formed a joint advisory group of university presidents, chancellors, and athletic directors to, quote, address the significant challenges facing college athletics and how to improve the student-athlete experiences. And the conferences made this announcement. It was not uh, something that was reporting on by an insider. The conferences are coming out and saying this overtly. Uh, The clock is ticking on the NCAA and it having any role at the highest level of college football. Yeah, if you're getting NCAA violations right now, like whether it was Michigan with what they dealt with, even if there was some legitimacy to what was going on there, or Tennessee now, or I think Florida's in hot water too. Like, are you even are you even taking any of this seriously? Because what we need, and hopefully this is what this new advisory board alliance, whatever they're calling it, hopefully this is leading us down a path where cooler heads can prevail and smarter heads with, you know, more modern minds and leadership capabilities can get in the room and actually figure something out. I mean, I know based on our conversations, Trey, you've thought much more about, um, you know, viable options for moving forward with college football and college athletics in general. But like, I still think there can be some sort of role for an NCAA type, you know, organization that, that governs the other sports. But again, I mean, we sound like a broken record, like football, at the power five level, especially needs to branch off. Like it needs to create its own, create its own league in a way, or, you know, something like maybe like we've said, like the college football playoff, even right now, like is the one championship that the NCAA really doesn't like operate. Right. I mean, <laughs> like the college football playoff is, is its own entity, but everything else is the NCAA national champion, the, the NCAA volleyball national champion the ncaa basketball national champion so yeah hopefully this this is just taking us one step closer to figuring out a way of of just eliminating the lack of consistency with anything across you know college sports right now this gets back to a point that you made several minutes ago about the idea that everything needs to be the same that everybody needs to be treated the exact same no we're not the same. We don't need to be treated the same as a result. And by the way, for those who push so hard for the world to be 100% completely fair, it's a beautiful thought, but it's also completely unrealistic. And I don't think the world would work well like that either necessarily. As far as college sports go, these things aren't the same. There is a, an enormous difference between I don't know, even some of the secondary sports like baseball or softball versus what college football means and how by what it means. I mean, how much fans love it and how much it makes in return financially. So to separate it from the traditional college model, I think will not only benefit football, I think it will ultimately benefit some of these other sports, too, because the numbers of scholarships in college football skews the whole uh, title nine counts 
significantly. It's why you saw the uh, the the crew and tennis scandals from a few years ago, where you had these rich kids essentially bribing coaches to let their kids be a part of the team so that they could get in school when they had never had any intent in playing or competing for that supposed sport. That's because there are a lot of scholarships that are given out on the female side, especially with title nine. And there, uh, there are just programs that are giant voids, I guess is the best way to put it. And look, the UT crew team has gotten really good over time. So kudos for them. But there are a lot of crew teams, USC included, not to throw your other school under the bus here that were uh, using that loophole to, uh, to help, some of uh, their richest uh, alumnus out to get their kids into school. So Varsity Blues. What's that? Varsity Blues. There you go. So for football, yeah, because that's what it was called, correct? Varsity Blues? Yeah, I think that's what the whole like sting or whatever operation was called. (laughs) FBI. (laughs) I mean, which sounds ridiculous. The FBI was involved with that. But then when you actually start breaking it down, you're like, oh, there was like, like significant fraud going on amongst, in a lot of cases, public universities and private universities. So actually that is a pretty big deal. (laughs) So for college football with the amount of money that's being brought in and the amount that all of these guys can make season to season too, versus what anyone's making at any of these other sports. And I realize there are some exceptions depending on the school, like Kentucky basketball players, maybe making a, a decent, salary for the season, let's say, and situations like that. I don't know what the Baylor women's basketball team does in the way of NIL, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Baylor women or the UConn women or the South Carolina women did okay for themselves too. But generally speaking, uh, college football trumps any of those other sports in terms of how much even backups stand to make to be a part of the program too. Here's where it gets tricky though, because football helps to fund a lot of other sports within an athletics department. So you need to make sure that you are still able to cover those costs while also paying these guys based on a sort of revenue sharing model. I'm not sure how that part of it works out just yet. Revenue sharing makes sense though, considering how much money is on the line. By the way, you want to talk about kids not opting out and participating in bowl games once again, let them get a cut of the bowl game money just for participating. But if they win, They get an even higher percentage of that. But football is going to be better off when it is treated more like its own thing. And these kids are all getting paid by their schools. Sorry, NCAA and schools. They are going to be university employees at that point. But they are getting paid a certain salary. You are operating with more of a salary cap. And can endorsement deals be made to help guys out? Absolutely. But let's not act like most of the money be, that's trading hands right now has anything to do with name, image, and likeness. Most of it has to do with checks being cut to these guys because they play for the program. They're not endorsing anything. There are exceptions. Again, John Robinson uh, endorsed Lamborghini. Uh, Quinn Ewers obviously has done really well with that. I know the sports card thing is a big deal in this realm right now, but allowing the schools to be a part of that process, to fold the collectives in the athletics department, figuring out some sort of rev sharing model will help make for a healthier college football, especially because we are now staring down the barrel of a two conference premier league, top league, however you want to refer to that mini NFL, everybody, everybody else, the big 12, the ACC, 
the group of five schools, what's left of the Pac-12, uh, left to compete in that Division Two for what would also be a national championship, by the way. It just wouldn't be the top tier of the sport. Well, and the, I mean, just that specific point there goes back to what you were saying about why, you know, previously you would almost never see a coach, a head coach at Boston College leave. Well, I don't know. Maybe you would, but I feel like we haven't seen that very often where a head coach at a power five football program leaves to go become the defensive coordinator of an NFL team. I'm sure there's an example. I can't think of one off the top of my head. And even the Buffalo coach, I think it was Maurice Linguist. I think, I think I have his name, right? The Buffalo head coach, he left a head coaching position to go be, I think a position coach on Kalen DeBoer's new staff at Alabama. Right about that. Yeah. I mean, that's another sign too. And obviously that's not as big of a program as the other two we talked about in Boston college and UCLA, but that's still a head coaching job at a program that if you do well at, you could get a job at, like, I don't know, throughout in Illinois or, or heck you could go from being the Buffalo coach to the Boston college coach. But um, back to the, you know, revenue sharing model is, is interesting because I don't know exactly how it would work. I mean, you would bring in a whole nother, you know, side of, like potential legal issues and things like that. But once it got ironed out, I think in the long run, it would solve a lot of those because the problem I think some people have right now is, well, it's just becoming a bidding war. Like people look at what Ohio state did and like, why would Quinshawn Judkins, the best running back in the sec, one of the best running backs in the country, leave a team that's going to be, that he was going to be the featured back on. He was going to be on a team, probably gonna be ranked in the top 10 hell, maybe even the top five at Ole Miss with all they have coming back and Lane Kiffin staying to leave and now go share a backfield with Travion Henderson at Ohio State. Like, I mean, money is like the only thing that you could think of. And again, I, I don't know of any other reason that that happened. But yeah, then when it becomes a bidding war of essential or essentially free agency every year, I think that's what people struggle with because there is a lack of there does become a lack of regulation with that. And like you said, Trey, I mean, it's naive to think that like, like, Oh yeah. Like he's just, you know, he's just going to endorse all these products and that money's yeah. It may not be coming directly from the university, but the university is directing where it's going. There is somebody at the university directing with these boosters. Hey, you know, this is where this money should go. Or, (laughs) you know, I mean, and, and that's again, to an extent that's probably been happening throughout the entire history in college football, it was just under the table. So I think there's going to, there were going to be growing pains with this all along. And hopefully this is just the next step in, in kind of, you know, eliminating some of those, because I still think what's happening now with this NIL being above board and guys getting paid above board, you know, from whatever endorsement deals and whatever the, I guess, connection, those people behind those have to the, to whatever university, like, at least that's better than it being underground. It's at least forcing these student athletes to to do something, if you will, to earn that money, appear in a commercial, give back to the community somehow. I mean, I still see some of the stuff that Texas players do with the Texas One Fund, and I see stuff all the time where I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool, you know? Like, actually, I saw a tweet. I briefly looked at it from Andrew Makuba, and it looked like it was linked to the Texas One Fund, and it was some sort of, like, I think it was called Pop-Up Birthday, and there were Texas players there putting things together for kids in foster care who 
you know, might not have a special birthday every year. And like, how that's cool awesome. would that be? Like a Texas player to, you know, make this for you, make an appearance or something like that. I mean, that's, that's freaking awesome, man. Like, I think that's a really cool, uh, you know, positive side effect and growing pain to, to some of this stuff. But yeah, I, I don't claim to really have any great answers on, on this, but we need, we need leadership and some sort of alignment and stability. I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to hammer on the pop-up birthday thing too hard. <laughs> it's a really cool, cool concept, but, but at least, at least they're doing something that's helping the community. I, I, I agree. But how much is Andrew Makuba being paid to endorse pop-up birthday? Hopefully a lot. Cause he deserves it. Yeah. But couldn't that money be better spent to make special birthday experiences for orphans? <laughs> oh, but isn't that what they're doing? I mean, I, again, I'm just throwing it out there. Like, I'm not saying that's the perfect system, but I didn't see any of that happening before. The only thing I saw like that happening before was, and this is still really cool. And I hope this happens too. This is not me. Just like, it's not you totally shitting on pop-up birthday. This isn't me totally going off on, on a hospital visit or something like that. But like, I feel like that's all I saw before was like, oh, guys go to the hospital and you know, those are awesome emotional experiences too. And I hope they still do that, but I don't know. I think there have been some positive, you know, things that maybe we didn't see coming to, to, to this too. Like they are, these, these dudes do have to still appear in public on behalf of certain, you know, certain things that they do want to be involved with. And I think, again, I know you're, you're going to kill me for this, but I do think that, I do think that does teach a certain level of like adult accountability like oh. to them too, of like, Hey, you're signing up for an endorsement with this. Like you're like money's exchanging hands and we're going to, you're agreeing to put your face and your name, image, and likeness on our business. Like that's teaching these guys that, Hey, you're going to get paid for this. But like you got to show up on and off the field. Now. I completely agree with that sentiment, by the way, that's more to the point of a nonprofit who has somebody at the head of the nonprofit who makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in that position. It's like, Oh, that's weird. Is that coming from donations? It's a nonprofit after all. I'm saying that very tongue in cheek. What they're doing is providing good for the community and helping the less fortunate. And there is value for that. Even if the kid is making pretty good money in the process. Yeah. Uh, my guess is that it might help with, write-offs in a sense for him down the road and that's an under uh reported story on the nil front is uh yeah. the struggles that these kids have had with tax keeping and uh paying those taxes at the end of the year when you think that's just kind of your money to to have no you actually have to report that that's earned income but guess um, what i mean that's is that, is that not teaching them another lesson too you know i, I've had I, a I agree that that was where i was about to head is that they that's something that they need to learn now especially if they're going to become professionals and that money gets even bigger but like having a kid go help out a nonprofit, whether it's uh i know Bijan had set up a nonprofit that taught kids in uh underprivileged communities to swim which is yeah so it's huge beyond belief i mean that is that's not just fun to be able to swim in the swimming pool. It's literally a life saving skill that you're teaching somebody. And you know why he did that, right? No. Why is that? So he, I guess the story is he almost drowned when he was a kid. So that's why it's like, especially close to home. Wow. It's close to home for him. I mean, he was like, dude, he was the gold standard for what name image and likeness should be. But also like, he's like, he's Bijan. Like, He's, he falls, he fell into that category of being a guy where we, we call you by your first name. We call you by, or we call you by one name. 
We call you Vince. We call you Colt. We call you Bijan, Mike, you know, um, I mean, we call you Earl. We call you Ricky. Like you go down the list of guys, like you reach a certain level of legend at Texas or really at, at any place in sports and you become a one name guy. And also Bijan just had the perfect personality to handle all that. He loves people. He loved, he genuinely loved doing all that stuff. He's still doing it too. So all that stuff, you know, even if we can ask those tongue in cheek questions about how much you're making based on the amount being given to the kid for a special birthday, that's doing something though, versus Miami, which is just shelling money out to yeah. plenty of other schools that are doing that too. Oh well, yeah, for sure. And, and if that's what's happening, I'm sure it is like, then, then yeah, we need regulation on that because like the deal, sh- these NIL deals shouldn't just be like a sheet of paper that's signed and a check that's written and then nothing happens. Like, but I guess, I, so are you saying that your point is basically that like, like I'm naive to think that that's not happening at like, that that's not what's happening at 95% of schools. And there's probably a version of that that's happening at Texas too. My point is, is that we strip away the facade of guys having to endorse or do something like the endorsement deals can be in place. But when you create that model where everything is under the, uh, the umbrella of the athletics department, the collective included, and you are paying these guys based on that rev sharing model, you're not having to fake the funk anymore. It can just be what it is. And these guys can actually do more to make more money through endorsement deals and whatever else. But that this is where the, te- the Texas group, back to our point about um, getting everybody going in the same direction, where the Texas group is really good about that early on. Like they really did have programs set up, like the Pancake Factory. There was something specific that that was tied to, where they had to go and do service for the community. Yeah. As part of them being brand ambassadors for the uh, Pancake Factory. There was so another this, one too that may have had to do with Derek Johnson's the defend the dream. libraries and poor schools. And it was maybe like going and reading to kids in those schools or something. So the Texas people have been really good about that. And I give them a ton of credit for trying to help teach a sense of giving back and that sense of responsibility as well. While also making sure that our student athletes, especially those who are playing football are getting paid with their dessert. What, what is deserved in this NIL era. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't, you're, you're, you're ahead of me on this Trey. I'm gonna be honest. Like, I don't have any like awesome ideas. Like I'm not saying it's perfect now, but at least like what I tend to see at Texas, like, like, I think, I think that's great. I think all this stuff too, even is, you know, it's, it's almost forcing these guys to go out and, and also like build lasting connections with really important, successful people in our community and build relationships with them that are going to help them well beyond football, whether these guys play in the NFL or not. Like I just, I think there's a lot of positive sides to it. And those relationships could have been there before, but at least now there's a little bit of structure to them. And, you know, there's, it's, it's less of just like, you're a player. I'm a booster with a ton of money. What's the dynamic here. It's like, no, we're like, this is like a partnership. Like, and then if those guys take an interest in something that, they're connected with somebody and they take an interest in what they're doing. Like that. I mean, that was, that was Moro uh, Moro's rant in spring ball. Remember that rant? Yeah. Like a big, a big part of his rant, which again, the, who he said it to 
like media on the record and stuff like that. And then even, even like kind of called out a few guys specifically, like it could have been done with a little more finesse, I think, but like nothing that guy said was off base at all. You know, he was basically just trying to teach these young guys, like take advantage of the opportunities you have while you're here. And like, you know, this, the life that you can build for yourself here by being involved in these different things, like even if you're not a star player, can benefit you literally for the rest of your life. So yeah, if it's, if it's not as productive at other places and then when, yeah, we need to, to streamline that. I mean, I, I totally see your point. It's a great point about the, the revenue sharing. And I love what you said about the bowl games too, where, um, cause I thought at first, like where the incentive for them to play is based upon put some potential revenue sharing, I think is what you're saying. But I thought at some point these NIL deals were things were going to be thrown in there too, where it, it said, Hey, if you want the last third of this money, like you can't opt out of the bowl game. But I think players probably pushed back on that pretty quick because like there are certain Texas didn't have any this year because they were playing for a national championship, but there are certain opt-outs like the Bijan Roshan opt-outs for the Alamo bowl. Like oh, yeah, that made sense. That would have been, stupid for them to play in that game so that's why those um those clauses exist in a lot of contracts but it has to do with regular season games like there there is a popular theory out there that the reason why and you tell me how you feel about this one trojans fan the reason why caleb williams did not pack it in at a point in the usc season where things were clearly lost is because he would have lost a pretty big chunk of NIL money if he had done that, or he would have had to pay that money back. And so he sucked it up and uh, played throughout the end of the season. There are stipulations in most, if not all contracts that keep guys from being able to do that for that exact reason. They can't just take the money and then cash it in. You're getting paid to play football. You can't just say, I'm not going to play anymore. You got to play, but they're also smart because they realize there are scenarios where it makes sense for a guy not to play in the bowl game like with a Bijan or a Roshan, and you don't want to stop a guy who's had a breakout season from being able to do that versus putting himself at risk and a matchup between two six and six teams at the Texas Bowl, let's say. Well, and if you're a, if you're a donor who's shelling out NIL cash and you're helping your your team as much as you think you are, potentially are in certain cases, then that's not going to help you get the next guy if you hold it over Bijan's head over – $14,000 in an Alamo bowl appearance, you know, like that's, that's not going to help. That's not going to help you land CJ Baxter. No, it's or not. Hey, you just next running back. All these first name Longhorns, Vince or VY Colts, the running backs, Earl, Ricky, now Bijan. Who's the first offensive name that comes to mind in terms of those one name players, or is there one? Mm. Whenever people say Tommy Nobis, they say Nobis. They don't say Tommy. <laughs> yeah, DJ maybe. I was gonna say yeah, D- Derek Johnson just going by DJ for sure. Um, Huff. <laughs> Huff is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, defensive player of all time who played at Texas. But yeah. I don't, I don't know if he gets that honor. That may may, may be mostly reserved for the offensive guys. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you just gotta you just gotta have the ball in your hands. A ton By the way, of time. TV, thank you for reminding me who it is that's pursuing Chip Kelly as the OC at the NFL level. It's, uh, it's Washington. It's Dan Quinn in Washington. Boy, that would be an interesting hire. And I would I would 
be more, I don't know about certain. I would be more, I would feel more strongly that Washington takes Daniels if Chip Kelly becomes the OC. There's been some rumblings too about even not NFL related about Chip Kelly at, at UCLA. Oh, that is not going to work long term. He would be smart to hit eject. Yeah. And he's already been there a while. Like I think he has them in a decent in a decent position. They have a really young bright AD, you know, who who probably at some point would like to make make another hire, you know. So uh, that could be one. That could be a situation where it just works out for all parties if he ends up leaving for an NFL coordinator gig. Yeah, you want to talk about a guy who is not suited for this era of college football with recruiting and transfer portal and continuing to suck up to your players after they get on campus. Yeah, Chip Kelly is belongs uh, next to the, uh, the the definition or explanation of that one. In a well, and good. Yeah, and, and again. Going back to I told you about my buddy who who left a, a group of five job as a as a recruiting staffer there. Like he said that too, where you just get so tired of recruiting your own guys. Like recruiting as is is already a grind. You're already you're already like dealing with high school kids with 15, 16, 17, 18 year old kids that you're recruiting based on the first point of contact in a lot of cases is when these kids are freshmen or sophomores in high school, and then you're recruiting them all the way through. So yeah, like now you have thrown in the wrench of re-recruiting your own team. And then also there's whatever percentage or stock coaches put in the transfer portal based on the attrition that you're going to have from your own roster to that new form of recruiting. Now there's now essentially three forms of recruiting. Like, where as before, maybe there was one, there was just regular recruiting. And then if a transfer left and wanted to sit out a year or do the grad transfer route, then yeah, you might reach out to said guy, but there was no portal of just like <laughs> a database of guys that throw their name in and then see who calls. I mean, the portal is basically like, it's basically like a giant like dating app for college football or yeah. you just, Hey, let me throw my name in. Let me make my profile on this dating app and see how many chicks hit me up or see how many dudes hit me up. <laughs> That's basically what the portal is. So well, that reminds me part of, the I don't blame people, chip Kelly. Well, my point being, I don't blame chip Kelly and other coaches for not wanting to deal with that. So part, part of the deal of a revamped uh, general authority in college football, a new governing body, if you will. And these conferences really coming together to make the rules is that these guys, when they sign to play at a school, they sign a multi-year deal, which helps to calm some of that down. And I don't know if it ends up being two to three years. Perhaps that's negotiable. But you get those guys on campus for at least a couple of years. And if they choose to go from one place to another and break that contract, you do have to sit out at that point until the contract is over with, which return, which I think would return a sort of normalcy to things. Yeah, that's interesting because the one-time transfer I didn't have like a huge issue with. And actually, like if they so if they go with that model that you just mentioned, hopefully there would still be some sort of it's 30 days right now, but maybe a 15-day window, a 21, three-week day window when a coach like DeBoer leaves after signing day 
or Saban retires after signing day. And then that creates this domino effect of now Alabama players are left in the lurch after signing day. Now, because they hire the Washington coach, Washington players are left in the lurch after signing day. And now because Arizona hires the, the, uh, or Washington hires the Arizona coach. Now that happens to Arizona. Now, because Arizona hires the San Jose state coach that happens to San Jose state, like just one coach retiring, albeit the greatest of all time creates this domino landslide where I think it's okay. If kids want an opportunity to look elsewhere, if their coach just did that, especially the head coach, like position coach. Like, I don't think just because like, and not that anybody wanted this, but just cause like Bo Davis leaves, like, I don't think Texas D linemen should now get to like transfer penalty free or something like that. But if it's the head coach and that dude didn't even stay at the program in DeBoer's case for two freaking years, then I, I think it's insanely hypocritical to ask a player especially given the timing of when DeBoer left to ask a player to, to just, we'll just stick it out. Yeah. Like in no other facet of, of life on this planet, especially in this country, do we just tell, or I'll speak for this country. <laughs> do we, do we tell people you have no control over your future based on like whatever happens? I mean, maybe what, like the military, like you sign up to be in the military and like you have a commitment there, no matter what. Here's the thing though, when you're signing a multi-year deal, like let's take any professional sport guys who are signed to multi-year deals that the coach gets let go or goes someplace else. So those guys get out of those contracts. You talking about in professional sports? Yeah. Mm, no, that's a good point. And you're it's essentially you're saying because there's revenue sharing and guaranteed money through the school's athletic department that they wouldn't, that basically that would, this would be pro football then is what you're saying. Yeah. That's that's worth that's what it's gonna be. Okay, yeah. Be. I mean, when you I mean when you say it like that, like okay, yeah. I mean, it sounds sounds a little more fair. Like if you just if you're just if we just completely talk about it under under those circumstances or that that kind of tense of pro football. See where it gets weird is when you're still connecting it to the schools. Like these guys do still need to be student athletes as well. Like they still have to go to school and they have to get their grades. Yeah, which is that doesn't go away even if they are considered they're considered yeah. separate. No, you're not going to Miss Society's right now. Thank you, though. Sorry, I get messages during shows now from my uh, lovely kids asking me questions and sometimes telling me what they're doing when I'm not necessarily okay with that. I love the note though. Some some crafty some crafty young people being raised in the Elling home. This is my Adorable daughter, Vivian, nine years old. She uh, created a picture of her floating spirit. <laughs> Wait, that's what she just drew right now to hand you? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And then she had a note on the back. I'm going to Mrs. Heidi's. They've got a new dog a couple doors down. And my kids love going over there to play with the dog. And I love that for them. But I'm kind of bound to this computer for <laughs> the next 15 minutes. So. I'm not okay with them going a couple doors down because I can't really go check on them or run get them if I need to. Hey, four, 14 more minutes, right? 14 more minutes, exactly. Does Carl Weathers' death do anything to you, Jeff? You know, these questions are always tricky because you 
because if you say no, you're just a real dick, right? I mean, no, you're just being honest. I no, think one, it, of the, one of the aspects. It, it doesn't. One of the aspects, good because one sad. of the aspects. I mean, it's it's obviously it's obviously sad, and I clearly guy you know had a hell of a career and all that. But for me personally, there's 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 nothing specific uh, on his you know body of work that that like personally hits home for me. What about you? Nothing from his body of work. Okay, that's that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I guess that's how you should look at it, and why you don't oh, have yeah. any feelings one way or the other. He was obviously Apollo in the Rocky movies. Yeah. I mean, and I, I watched those, but like that just wasn't, it wasn't my era. Like it was, it was my dad being like, we're going to watch the Rocky movies and me being like, yeah, those were good. And then him being just like flabbergasted that I didn't think it was the sickest movie of all time. He was in Predator. Great in Predator. Ends up getting mowed. He actually dies in every role that I can think of right now. Um, gets mowed down in Predator. He was in Happy Gilmore, played Chubbs in Happy Gilmore. See, but he's not who I immediately think of. Like, I love Happy Gilmore, but obviously I think of the Sandman. Well, of course, but Chubbs is a secondary character here. I know, but like, I, I don't know. If you were, if you were going to say like this, this like really hit home for me, it would, that would have to be like, I think of that movie and that's the person I immediately think of based on the way you, like so you asked ranking, me. it probably goes Sandler, Shooter McGavin, and then Chubbs, maybe, or maybe Julie Bowen because she looked very good in that movie. Yeah, Bob Barker. Bob Barker. See, I go Chubbs over Bob Barker, even though that's, that was that's a fair. Team. Larger role. Larger role. I think a I think a a better overall role too. As great as Barker was, kicking Sandler's ass on the golf course. Yeah. Well, you know, special special connection there. You know. What's the Bob special? Barker? Oh, his his last name is Bob Barker, and I got lived lived with that my whole life. When I was in uh, when I was in Pop Warner, I'm sorry. Well, no, no. Two quick things on that. Um, my grandpa on my dad's side, no longer with us, but his name was Bob Barker. So when I played Pop Warner football the first year, our defensive backs coach basically made me lie to the entire team and say that the Bob Barker like was my grandpa, like the famous price is right. Bob Barker. And that like, I can't even remember what it was, but it was like, if we did some, had some level of success, met some certain goal that Bob Barker would come, come see us. And I'm like, you're making me lie to like all these dudes that I, I don't even know. And like after like a week or two, like he find like I kept freaking out and he finally was like, okay, I'll tell everyone that like, I made you like, tell this like like white lie and i'm like that's not a white lie like oh no. <laughs> that's that's like turning me into an to an asshole yeah so anyway that's that's another the the last name connection in that story is is why bob barker really hits home fuck is wrong with adults who are asking kids to lie like that my goodness i mean funny in hindsight you know funny in hindsight yes but in the moment my goodness yeah in the uh, moment when you're like story out of it though you get to carry that story with you for the rest of your life right and that's probably how that's probably how this coach looked at it uh, i think he was looking at it as a way to try and get a competitive edge which is why it's fucked up but the story worked out for you yeah. because he eventually owned it apologized fessed up to the team and you didn't have to come up with real bob barker your grandpa yeah. Bob Barker sufficed after that. 
Yeah. And then, and then, it, yeah. And then it just became like something that like everybody joked with me about. So actually it kind of like did buy me some points with the team in, at the end of the day. Yeah. That's good. Anyway, so it says in the TMZ report on Carl Withers death, Carl Weathers death, excuse me. Can't mispronounce the man's last name on the day he dies. That according to his family, he died peacefully in his sleep. How do we always know that somebody died peacefully in their sleep, assuming that everybody wasn't surrounding him at the time? If he died suddenly but peacefully in his sleep, are we sure it was peaceful? Are we sure there wasn't uh, there wasn't some sort of horror that led up to the actual final breath? You just I tell ass- ourselves that to feel better about the fact that he died suddenly and you want to think that he went out peacefully versus getting attacked by a pack of wolves? Well, I, I assume when people you you cut out for a second, but I assume when people say that they they have some sort of like a, a way of confirming from doctors or something that like this person just fell asleep and then never woke up, or are you saying that it could have been mid bad dream? Like, what? <laughs> I mean, there could could have been something horrific that happened. Like the person suffers a massive heart attack or stroke or something they're they're left there to just to just be understanding that this is the end and that they can't do anything about it that's not peaceful that'd be horrible well i guess you can say peacefully when there's no way to ever (laughs) confirm or deny it anymore all right we're gonna end today's show with my latest Larry David moment, Jeff, in honor of the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, the last season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, two days off on Sunday night on HBO. So sad the show is ending, even if the last couple of seasons haven't been as good as the rest of the series. So I was at Lifetime Fitness earlier today and had a run-in with somebody else, and I need to provide you some context first. So I don't know what your gym habits are. When I go to the gym, I'm doing different things. I'll do some mobility stuff before I actually hit the weights, may do some stretching afterwards. Like I'm trying to get my hip and glute back to full strength right now. So I'll do some PT stuff at the ends of workouts. And I'm doing that pretty much after every workout right now. So I prefer to do that in the aerobics or yoga rooms, you know, the rooms that have the basketball flooring They are usually mirrored all the way around. They may have railing on the outside, but assuming that there's not a class in there at the time, those rooms are great because they're empty. They're a little bit cooler. They're dark. So I can just kind of peacefully go about whatever it is I need to do and like be focused mentally, everything else. So when I set up in this room a couple of days ago, there wasn't a class going on and I was by myself. There may have been one other person in there. Well, I set up, right against the wall. And it would be like, if you're looking at the classroom, there's a platform at the front of the class where the teacher is teaching the class. I would be at the back of the room from that still middle of the room, but the very back wall set up. My mat is parallel to the wall. And so I'm going through the motions of this workout and I'm at the end of the workout. And this woman comes in because there is a class that's going to be starting in the next 10 to 15 minutes. She comes in and she sets her keys and her phone and her water bottle down a couple of feet from the head of my yoga mat or my head and as I'm laying on the yoga mat. And then she grabs the mat herself and literally puts the yoga mat perpend- or, uh, parallel to mine 
a foot away from my yoga mat. Now, mind you, this entire room is still empty. Again, there may be one other person in there, but the room is mostly empty. And so she does this a couple of days ago. And I kind of look over at her like, is this serious right now? And she walks away for a second and I continue my workout. She comes back over and stands between our mats where she's basically standing directly over me, waiting for this next class again. And I know what she's doing. She's trying to mark her spot. She's trying to get that spot in the back of the class because she's a middle-aged, overweight woman who doesn't want to be the focus of anybody else in class. She wants to be at the back so she can get her workout in and maybe get herself in better shape. But talk about either aloof or just completely discourteous in a situation like this. So a couple of days ago, I was at the end of my workout. So I was annoyed. But I was like, you know what? This isn't worth it. This woman, maybe she's not paying attention or maybe she's just that big of an asshole. So I got my stuff, got my mat, clean the mat off, hang the mat up and go about my day. So today I'm back in the same room, same spot. Nobody in this big, not poorly lit room, but dim room. What what time do you go? Uh, I usually get to the gym by 7.15 or 7.30. Oh, so you're there early. Yeah, and so at this time, it's probably between 9 and 9.15 when I'm setting up. And so there's a class that starts at 9.30. And so, um, or maybe it's 8.30 to 9. I don't know the exact time. So I get there with enough time. I know when the class is likely going to start, but I've got time to do my stuff. This time the woman comes in a few minutes earlier and again does the exact same thing. Except this time she doesn't walk off for a few seconds. She just stays right there. So I'm like laid down doing my stuff directly over me. I mean, she is, she's turned away from me. So she's not like looking down at me, but she's directly over me. So I stand up and I say, excuse me. She turns around. She's like, yes. I'm like, there is no reason for you to be set up this closely to me right now. This is an empty big room. I understand that this is the spot that you want to be for whatever the class is that's coming up, but you are completely violating my personal space right now. And she said, Oh, okay. I'm sorry. And so I start to go to whatever the next set is. She doesn't go anywhere. She doesn't move. She just stays right there. Same exact spot. And so I have to like, I'm seeing red at this point. Steam coming out of my ears. Classic cartoon, angry cartoon character stuff. Like, move the hell out of the way. So I have to stop mid-set and say, are you serious right now? Like, I just, I'm, I guess I didn't ask her, but I'm like, can you please move? Like, you are in my space right now. Like, can you please move away from here until I'm done? She's like, well, how long is it going to take for you to get done? <clears throat> Like 10 minutes, I don't know. That's really none of your business. I was here first. Yeah. And you know that I'm going to be out of this class before it's over with, so just freaking relax, okay? You've already put your mat down. Nobody else is going to come over and put their mat within a fucking foot of your mat like you did for me. I didn't say the fucking part. I didn't <laughs> what I just told you either. I was just like, yeah, can you please move away? Like you're, you are in my personal space right now. Like this is, this is very rude of you. And so at this point, she did take several steps away and she she was just like scoffing and shaking her head and like laughing about it. And I'm just like, wow, that's your response. And this is very common with discourteous people in 2024 is you double down 
on your stupidity with more stupidity. It's like the person who's driving like a total asshole or distracted by their phone, or maybe they're looking at their phone at a red light. You give a little courtesy honk after they've been sitting there for five seconds when the light turns green and they're not moving, and they give you the finger in return. She kind of does a passive-aggressive version of that. And so at this point, I'm like, I can't be in this room anymore. This is going to turn much uglier before it gets any better. So I just pack my stuff up after I finished whatever that previous set was and just went and finished up outside. Yeah, that's like when, like I always say, when there's no, like, if you try to go through the the run of like, like put yourself in their shoes, like what's the logic behind this? When there's no sound logical reason for them to be, like in her case, be right there, like I would... I would lose it. Like I, I would have I done the same thing. I would have tried to be nice one time. And then after that, I would have been like, Oh hell no. Um, but that is what you said about the reaction is something I've totally run into also. That's kind of a new thing. It seems like it's almost like, like you, when you mentioned she was laughing, it's almost like gaslighting. Yeah. Like they, like they are doing something that is so clearly out of line. And then you call them out on it and you get you get gaslit for it. Like they like laugh at, like she's walking away laughing at you. Like this guy is losing it. And it's like, no, you're being a loser and have no decency. You are a complete jerk. Right. But she's gaslighting you completely self-serving, obviously. And you don't show any, any level of decency to other humans. This isn't just a me thing. Yeah. Like I guarantee that's how she is. And a lot of other avenues of life. I don't know if one fuels the other, but she probably feels empowered to do it because enough people don't say anything. They just like walk off because so many people are, are, uh, they try to avoid conflict. They're conflict averse. Well, I'm not conflict averse. If you get in my personal space and don't see the problem with it, you're at least going to hear about it from me. And I guarantee you I'll see her again. And if she tries to pull the shit again, it's going to get worse for both of us probably. Like to say it's just going to get worse for her, but it's just going to be like, no, this you and I need to go talk to somebody with lifetime management right now because I, I, this is unacceptable, and you need to show a an ounce of fucking courtesy towards another human here. Here's the here's the more decency over the weekend, Trey. More decency over the weekend. It's great stuff, my man. We'll talk to you on Monday. Yes, sir. All, All good right. this Monday. Great stuff as always. Thanks to everybody who has tuned in today, either on YouTube. Please make sure to subscribe, click that thumbs up button, and on the free app, download it if you have not already through the App Store. For Jeff Barker and everybody else at Texas Sports Unfiltered, I am Trey Elling. We will talk to you on Sunday with the Wagner Wild, but on Monday for the weekday shows, starting with Bucky and BK at 8 a.m. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend and hook them.